if you enjoy baklava, think for a second about the honey that makes it sweet. Think for just a second. God grew flowers using nothing but sunlight and some nutrition in the soil. And a stinging insect came along and slurped up some nectar from that flower and regurgitated it into its nest. And it is delicious. We serve a God that has just amazing, enormous creativity. Foghorn Leghorn has nothing on the God of the universe. And when the psalmist writes about the law of God, his thought is to go to honey. Sweeter than honey. I would rather enjoy your good commandments and be refreshed by your law than eating honey. Let me ask you today, how do you feel about the law of God? When you hear God's commandments, do they feel burdensome? Do they feel like a standard that you can't measure up to? Because the reality is, God shows His love for you and I in His law. And I believe that as you learn to grow and as you, as you experience a little bit of fruit in your life, as, as sort of like a kid learning how to ride a bike, you start with training wheels and you're wobbly, But the more you experience a good bike ride, the more you delight in it and love in it. And initially, it can be painful to learn. And a lot of times, you might not enjoy the learning process. But as you learn how to obey, it becomes more and more delightful. And so as as that psalm was written, the psalmist has experienced the goodness and the sweetness of the law. And so... The commands of God become praise for him. I want to ask you this morning, not only how do you feel about the law and God's commandments, how do you feel about God himself? Do you love God with your heart? Are you excited about being in his word? Does singing his praises put a smile on your face? Do you love spending time in prayer with him? Have you ever had your soul nourished by communing with God in prayer, having the Holy Spirit speak into your life so that you hear the promises of God's word and you understand that they apply to you, that you can claim them in faith, looking to Jesus, not because of anything that you do, but because Jesus did it all for you. And so the promises that you read in scripture of God's blessings are promises that you can claim. And in moments of discouragement and in moments of fear and in moments of weakness, even in moments of failure, you can Go to the Lord. You don't have to run from Him and find refreshment and find life and find health and find joy. Joy that will put a smile on your face. Do you love God like that? Jesus said the greatest commandment is actually not starting with strict moral obedience, but the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God. And it's not a cold love of obligation. The first way he describes it is with all your heart, with your emotions, the kind of love that moves you to tears when you watch the beginning of Up and you see the old couple 
and all of their broken dreams and all the sorrow that they have, and yet they have such a beautiful relationship that it leads you to tears. That's a heart kind of love. That's a heart love. Do you love God with your heart, with your soul, with your mind, and with your strength? And if you love someone, when they ask you to do something, that is not a harsh thing. It becomes an opportunity to love them back through an act of service, through granting their request in whatever way you can. I was talking to Deb Coleman yesterday, and we, we were talking a little bit about this because I was explaining to her what I, what I was going to be preaching on from Exodus chapter 20. We said in the context of a, of a marriage relationship, you know, if, if I go to my wife and say, you know what, I don't want rules I don't want you to hem me in or box me in. I just, I just want a relationship with you. It's not about rules. It's about a relationship. And if I, if I decide that because I want just that relationship with no rules, that it's okay for me to go and date somebody else, I don't actually have a relationship with my wife. The command for me to not commit adultery, if I love my wife, is not a problem at all. No one in love is tempted towards adultery. The reality is, love comes first so that all of the other commands are sweet and beautiful obedience. And so this week, as we go to Exodus chapter 20, where God gives us the Ten Commandments, we're going to take three weeks here. The first week, I want to go through and just look at a couple of verses. We're not going to read even the whole chapter today, which normally I do. The first week, I want to demonstrate the character of God. Because I believe if you see God's character, you will love him. So my prayer is that we would see his character very clearly today, and that our hearts would be enlarged, that we would love him in an emotional way, so that we are motivated to obedience. Next week, I want to look at the first half of the commands. Because Jesus says the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God. The first five commands describe how to do that. You can't say, I love God, and dismiss them. We're not free to do that. We, we can't say, you know, God, I express my love in a way that's just a little different than what you recommend, but I really, really love you. That does not work. And so the first five commandments that we're going to look at next week describe what it means to love God. And then the following five will show us the second greatest commandment, Jesus said, is like the first commandment. That you are to love your neighbor as yourself. And so the next five will show us what it means to love our neighbors as ourselves. All of this comes in the context of a God who is revealing who he is to sinners who have not been able to enjoy his presence in any meaningful way, with except very rare exceptions, as God appears to Abraham by his grace. As God appears to a handful of, of people Leading up to this, most people have had no access. And so now, in the book of Exodus, God is revealing himself. And the first thing he reveals as he describes his law, he doesn't lead with commandments. He's not like some alienated father coming back and laying down the rules for the house that he's been absent from. No. The first thing he does is he reveals who he is as a redeemer. So I've got five points today, and I want to look at the character of God. There are first things that are very clear. Turn with me to Exodus. I'd like you to see it in the scriptures. And if you need one of the Bibles that we have throughout the sanctuary here, the blue ones, it's page 61 
and the, the large print ones, the Red Bibles, it's page 72. Let me encourage you to turn there with me. And I'll be reading selections from, from chapter 20. And in the course of three weeks, we'll go through the whole chapter. So the first thing is your Redeemer, God. This is the first thing that God shows to us. And it says in verse 1 of Exodus chapter 20, And God spoke all these words. This is not from Moses. This is not from some wise person. This is from God Himself. And this is what God says. Verse 2, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. The first thing to notice about the Ten Commandments is that the first words out of the mouth of God are not a command. They are a reminder that He is our Redeemer, God. Israel has powerful evidence of God's love for them because they have just seen Him in the course of a few months show incredible power as He sets them free from slavery and bondage. They have seen Him demonstrate his power over all the false gods of Egypt, the most powerful nation in the world, supposedly the most powerful gods in the world, and yet their God has shown himself to be greater. He has showed command over over insects, over animals, over weather. He has blotted out the sun. He has saved them from death. He has split the sea for them to walk through on dry ground. And he has humbled the most powerful nation in a display both of judgment on sin and love for the people who trust Him in faith. He has redeemed them and they should never doubt His love because they have seen His redemption. But if that's true of ancient Israel, and I believe all of the things that we see in Exodus chapter 20, you can imagine over here, this is true in a powerful and a real way for His people in the book of Exodus in the history where they lived, it's true for them. But if it's true for them, it's even more true for those of us who have seen the love of God displayed, not just in judgment on sin and sinners in Exodus, but in the mercy and grace extended to us through the cross of Jesus Christ. The Scripture says in 1 John, in this the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent His only Son into the world that we might live through Him. In this is love, Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. That word propitiation, it means the atoning sacrifice. It means the sin offering that we could not make, He made on our behalf so that we could be forgiven. The debt that we owed to God because of our disobedience and rebellion has been paid through the precious Son of God. That is what love is. If you ever doubt the love of God, let me encourage you to meditate on the cross of Christ. Think very specifically about the nails that pierced His hand. Think about the nail that was driven through His feet and understand the physical pain and torment that He endured for you and for I is a demonstration of God's radical love for you and I. Sinners who do not deserve that kind of love. Think on the cross of Christ and know that God loves you. There's a famous songwriter from from a couple of generations ago named Charles Wesley. And he wrote about that personal redemption like this. And he said, he breaks the power of canceled sin. 
So if you're an addict, you understand the power of canceled sin because very often it continues to control you. Jesus breaks the power of canceled sin. He cancels the sin because he he pays the debt. We no longer owe a debt to God because Jesus paid it for us. He sets the prisoner free. His blood can make the foulest clean. His blood availed. His blood conquered for me. As we look at at the commands of God, that is the context for God giving His commands. His love is displayed for us. Now, so the first point today is He is our Redeemer. That's who gives us these commands. The second point, look at your jealous God. Your jealous God. Going back to Exodus chapter 20. And look with me at verses 4. And verse 5 is really where this point comes from. But look with me. It says, You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. This is how he shows his jealousy, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Notice even there, love is paired with keeping God's commandments. I think our normal reaction to verse five is to wonder why God describes himself As a jealous God. Jealousy is not a virtue that we admire in anyone. And as God says, I am a jealous God. He has told them, do not worship false gods. And do not think that you can make an image to use even as you try to worship me. There is no place for a false god. There is no place for imagining that you can fashion an image that could ever describe what God is like. And as he gives that command, the reason for that is he is incredibly jealous. But this jealousy needs to be understood in the context of his love. No one faults a husband and wife for being jealous for their love for each other. No wife says, honey, I'm just going to have a boyfriend on the side. That's, you're fine with that, right? No. Jealousy within the context of love makes very good sense no loving husband is indifferent to his wife sleeping around if he's indifferent it's a sign that he doesn't love and the more you love someone the more jealous you are what could be greater than the love of god so then what could be greater than the jealousy of god when god demands that his people be faithful to him spiritually he is doing this out of his love And you can see his character. Remember, we're we're looking at the character of God, helping us know who he is so that we love him more. You can see his character in how he describes this jealousy. Notice he carries the sins of the unfaithful, those who hate him, down to three or four generations. But he shows mercy to thousands. The implication is of thousands of generations of those who love him and keep his commandments. I, I really believe... This is actually why sometimes by the grace 
and mercy of God, revival breaks out among people that are sinful, that don't deserve it, that aren't looking for it. Because in the mercy of God, He stops generations of sin where we as sinful people teach our children if we don't worship God, we do teach them to worship and we teach them to worship idols and that leads to their condemnation as well. So when you look at God saying, I I visit the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generations, he's not holding innocent people guilty for their father's sins. Those children have learned to worship idols, and so they bring the condemnation down on themselves. And in one sense, the father is responsible for that because he taught them to do it. But in another sense, the child is also guilty because he has continued to worship an idol. And God says that will continue to the third and fourth generations. But his character is not to delight in punishing sin His character is to show mercy to thousands of generations. And any child at any time can come to God and plead his mercy and experience that forgiveness and that blessing and that life. It is critical to recognize that there is no life apart from God. Even his jealousy is for our good. So he longs for us to worship him and he makes that possible. He makes provision so that we can do that. And that is for our good. Because forsaking God makes about as much sense as an astronaut standing on the moon just deciding that his spacesuit is so oppressive that all he really wants to do is take a breath of fresh moon air. And so he really wants to take his helmet off. We understand how stupid and deadly that is on the moon, but how often do we turn to things for satisfaction that are not God? And as we come up empty and we come up dry, and as we experience disappointment in the things that we thought would fill us, we look at God and say, God, why am I so unhappy? The reality is, our emptiness is an expression of God's judgment because we have not been faithful. And God in His mercy calls us back to him. He is jealous for us. And as we experience the consequences of our unfaithfulness, that is God calling us back to him. And and Christians, you might think this is an Old Testament God. God is just extra harsh. Let me remind you, in the New Testament, in the book of James, James chapter 2, James says very clearly, friendship with the world, he's speaking to believers, friendship with the world is enmity with God, and God yearns jealously over the Holy Spirit that He has made to dwell in us. Recognize, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you have confessed your sins, you are trusting on Him in faith, God has given you His Holy Spirit. His Holy Spirit dwells within you. And if you are worshiping some other thing, you are being unfaithful to the Spirit of God that lives within you. You are being content with a gift of God rather than God himself. And James warns that God is jealous for our affections as believers. And this is a kind and a good warning. He actually says, he he calls the church an adulteress when they try to consume things that they love in the place of God. His language is incredibly harsh. And so this warning that God is a jealous God is a sign that God is a good and a faithful lover and is a sign for us that we need to take this seriously. 
Can I ask again, do you love God? Is he first in your life? Is that obvious in your life? Because if you don't seem different from people that don't know the Lord, it's a real serious sign that your affections are out of line. You are committing spiritual adultery and our jealous God will punish that. But I would be wrong to preach this with a kind of harshness that doesn't also stress the amazing mercy of God. In Exodus, it describes his incredible mercy, showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love him and keep his commandments. And in James, again, parallel to this, to believers, it says, but God gives us more grace. He will always give you grace. So let me beg you to seek him passionately. So our loving God, the first attribute, he's our redeemer, he's loving. The second attribute is he is jealous and his jealousy is for our good. Now look at the next attribute, the next character. So, so think for a second, just in human relationships, when you're trying to pick a spouse, okay, you want someone who is, is loving, you want a strong relationship. What's something that your father-in-law wants in you? Speaking especially to men, I, I had a, before I married Lauren, I sat down with my father-in-law, uh, not because I really wanted to do it, but because the pastor who was marrying us made us. And so we sat down at a Tim Hortons and I got the grilling for my father-in-law. And I, I had talked to him before. I'd talked to him before we got engaged, but asked him, you know, what, what would you speak into my life? And this is a very practical father-in-law kind of thing. Notice the next character quality of God is a God who works and a God who rests. Look with me at at verse 8 through 11 of of the chapter here. Exodus chapter 20. God says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. You or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is in your guest. No work. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Now again, the command of God is connected to what God has done. And God's actions are always connected to His character. So we are told to work and to rest because God Himself rested. Our God is is a working God and a resting God. And the two go together. You cannot separate them. First, notice, God is a God who finishes what he starts. I have so many abandoned projects, and, and uh, my wife is not here today. Our, our daughter is sick, so I, I can't pick on her too much. But she loves to crochet, and I will mention, she has a few more projects started than she has finished. There's always a temptation. There's always a point in a project where you go, you know what? I'd rather do something else. And that's true of me, too. I can't say that that's unique to her. God always finishes what he starts. Always. It's true in creation. It's true in Israel's redemption. He didn't leave them in the middle of the Red Sea and say, you know, guys, I'm kind of bored with this. He faithfully saw them through to the end. 
He worked six days in creation. His work ended on day six and he rested on day seven. Resting from work is a sign of completion. Now, we are finite human beings. In one sense, our work is never done. But God is someone who is able to complete what he starts. That's why Paul says in Philippians with such confidence, he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it in you. The God who saved you is not going to abandon you. And let me ask you, does that help you love him more? Does that give you confidence that he is good, that he will not abandon you? I can tell you my father-in-law, his, one of his concerns was, are you guys going to have health insurance? Are you going to make sure that you take care of my daughter and any kids that you guys might have? These are character qualities that we look for in other people that we value. But it starts in a God who works and in a God who finishes what he does. Second, every work that we accomplish, speaking now more of, of, of the human obedience to this command, every work that we accomplish depends on God. It doesn't matter if you want to try to parse life into sacred and secular, which is a bad idea anyway. Every work is dependent on God. Yes, we are commanded to work. And, and that's part of this. The emphasis here is on rest. He says, remember the Sabbath day. You're going to rest one day a week. But the rest of it says, work six days a week. Be faithful to do the work that you have. But all throughout the Bible, we see that work is to be done in the context of faith. Dave Padgett in Sunday school this morning mentioned a, a fantastic verse from Deuteronomy. Says, Do not think that you earned your wealth. It didn't come from you. Don't take credit for it. Any success that you have comes from God. Don't harden your hearts and forget God. Recognize that your work is an act of worship. And recognize that anything you have comes from God. And the reason that's relevant to this command is rest is a sign of faith that God is the one who does the work anyway. We do this on a daily basis. Every night when we close our eyes, some of the prayers that we pray with our kids are really beautiful and profound because it reminds us that God does watch over us while we sleep. Nobody can go without sleep. Nobody can protect themselves perfectly. No one is able to provide for themselves perfectly. No matter about a work, no matter the amount of vigilance, all of it is insufficient. All of it ultimately depends on God himself. And rest is a sign that we trust that God will do the work. Jesus says, do not be anxious about what you eat or drink or wear. Non-believers obsess over these things. But your heavenly father knows that you need them. Instead, seek first the kingdom of, of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. He also says, come to me, all you who are weary and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And I say more about this next week, but the command to rest is both spiritual and it's it's very literal. It's very physical. Our physical rest as people who, who are both spiritual and physical is a sign of faith in God. And that rest should take an attitude of worship. And part of that should be worshiping together as a church. Your faithfulness to worship together as a church says a lot about where your heart is at with God. It really does. 
This means that all of our work is to be done in the context of faith, trusting God to meet our needs. And this is tremendously liberating. You feel like a failure? You know what? If there's sin, confess it. But also, rest in the reality that God gives you forgiveness and rest in the reality that your God will provide for you according to his riches in Christ Jesus. You can rest. When we don't rest, we are essentially saying to God, you know what, I don't really trust you. I think that my work will actually make all of the difference. And I don't think that you can do this without me. You will kill yourself if you live like that. So God, in his kindness, commands rest as a daily and a weekly reminder that he is the one who does the work. and He always finishes what, we start, what, what he started. When we obey, we recognize that none of our work amounts to anything apart from God. That's biblical. Jesus says, apart from me, you can do nothing. And so in honor of him, we sit down or we lay down and we trust our good heavenly father. We glorify him by showing that we depend on him and not ourselves. So God shows his goodness in finishing what he begins and commanding our rest. So first of all, we have a redeemer God. Secondly, we have a jealous God. Thirdly, we have a working God who commands us to rest because he has shown us how. Next, notice with me the holiness of God that is revealed as he gives his law to people. And look with me at verses 18 to 21. Now, when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled. And they stood far off and said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to the people, do not fear, for God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. And the people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. Recognize that holiness is a thing that is deadly for sinners. And yet recognize the mercy of God in making us aware of that. We don't live oblivious to the fact that we have a problem being separated to God by our sin. God has made us aware of that and he made his people aware of that. And, and pause for a moment and consider what the world would be like if God were not holy. Because when we read this, we wonder, why, why is this dangerous? We feel like separated and cut off. And I think at some level, we should. We need to recognize what our sin does. And even as believers, our sin can grieve the Holy Spirit and we can, we can hinder our relationship with God. And so this is a good reminder of God's awesome holiness. Think for a second. I believe there are people that want God to change his law, to change his holiness. Think for a second what that would be like. Can you imagine a God who made promises and then broke them because he felt like it? Can you imagine a God who lied, who intentionally said things that were not true? Can you imagine a God that played favorites that rewarded evil? You know, this man over here, he's wicked, but he's very strong and I like him. God is not like that. I, I think in some level, we, we're tempted to be like Alexander the Great. He, he's an amazing leader. I like him. He also murdered thousands of people. We admire strength and sometimes we forget about character because we love strength. God is not like that. God is holy. He is radically holy. The problem we have with God's holiness is that 
We long for a God who overlooks evil because deep down we know that we are not holy. And that's why the people in this chapter here, they ask for more distance from God because they are afraid of his presence. And this is a temptation that we all face as we come near to God. It's why so many people want nothing to do with God. But notice what Moses says to the people. He says, do not fear. God's holiness is a good and beautiful thing. In Exodus, Moses explains God's holiness should motivate God's people to holy living. And the New Testament says the same thing. Peter says, be holy, for I am holy. And that remains true for us. If the cross of Christ reveals God's love, let me stress it also displays His awesome holiness. If you doubt the love of God, I encourage you to think about the cross of Christ. If you are indifferent to God, if you struggle on a daily basis to value Him, let me urge you to think of the cross of Christ and what it says about holiness. God in His holiness would not overlook our sins and sent His beloved Son to die in our place, enduring the worst form of torture. That's holiness. That's a God that won't look the other way for any reason. The cost of our sin was infinite. This is part of why I don't believe in purgatory, because purgatory is a finite set amount of time. You can't work off your sins in a set finite amount of time. Your sins are an infinite offense to a holy God that can only be paid by the Son of God. Only God's beloved Son could pay it. And yes, through His shed blood, we are forgiven But we must never take that lightly. So if you're here today and you have never trusted in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, let me urge you to trust him. There is salvation in no one else. But if you have trusted Christ already, let me ask, in light of how great the cost of your salvation is, are you living like it? The God who sent Jesus to die for our sins loves you. And he displays his holiness, not to harm you, but so that you learn to fear him, so that you learn to worship him in purity. And that's the final point for today. The the chapter ends with worship. It begins, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. I'm the Redeemer. You shall have no other gods before me. And then it ends giving very specific instructions in how to worship God. So look with me. The final point for today, worship your God in purity. And the Lord said to Moses, verse 22, Thus you shall say to the people of Israel, You have seen for yourselves that I have talked with you from heaven. You shall not make gods of silver to be with me, nor shall you make for yourselves gods of gold. An altar of earth you shall make for me, and sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen. In every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and I will bless you. That is an awesome promise. If you make me an altar of stone, you shall not build it of hewn stones. For if you wield your tool on it, you profane it. And you shall not go up by steps to my altar, that your nakedness be not exposed on it. Notice three things from God's instructions for worship. First, the worship of God depended on sacrifices. And it still depends on the sacrifice of God's beloved Son. We are able to approach a holy God because Jesus died in our place on the cross and rose from the dead. 
we should never take that lightly, even as we worship in singing. It should motivate our praise. It should humble us. We should be in awe of the radical love of God in our worship. Second, sometimes we get the feeling that our best work is somehow really great and truly impressive before God. The reality is, it's not. Your heart matters far more than anything you could offer God. Notice he tells his people not to make him fancy altars or anything of gold or silver. Now, he will, at the end of Exodus, describe how he wants the tabernacle to be built. And man, there's going to be gold, there's going to be beauty. Our God loves beautiful things. He makes them all the time, and we are to be like him and also make beautiful things. But notice this, as we worship a holy God, we cannot think that by making beautiful things, he will love us more. And we must never Put the objects that we use to worship God above God and certainly not above our brothers and sisters in Christ. It's easy. Let me talk about buildings for just a second. So it's easy for a church to take some pride in its building. That's dumb. Especially as you compare buildings with other, you know, oh, that's a, that's a gorgeous building. I'm not talking about, like, you can have appreciation for architecture. There's nothing wrong with that. But recognize God worked for 300 years in the early church where no one had buildings. It's not about a building. And when he instructs his people to worship them, he actually warns them, don't think that you can make something super fancy and nice because your best offerings are impure because you are impure. This passage is a caution for us to not think too highly of our own efforts to worship God. For all of the value of beautiful art and all of the importance of giving our very best to God, and God doesn't want us to give him just leftovers or whatever. He does want us to give us our very best. We have to recognize that what we give to God does not earn us his favor. We only come to God through the blood of Jesus Christ. This is a reminder to put first things first. Seek God himself and do not confuse a religious experience with fellowship with God. There are lots of people that have emotional experiences that don't know God at all. Make sure that we come to God in all of His awesome holiness through the blood of Jesus Christ, worshiping Him in spirit and in truth. Third, He instructs them not to elevate the altar so that they would be indecent in worship. And in Genesis, I just pause for a second, I think, Think why God gives clothing to people. In Genesis, right after Adam and Eve are created, the Bible says they were naked and unashamed. There was a purity and an innocence and a love. They were safe. No one would harm them. No one would leer at Eve. There were no problems in Genesis, but as soon as they sinned, God made a sacrifice and covered them with animal skins. Sin always needs a covering. And God is saying that even in worship, even in the context of sacrifice, they still need to cover their shame as they worship Him. You know, sometimes people feel like you go up to a mountain to get closer to God. Sometimes people elevate an altar so that they could feel like it's more holy, like we, we exalt this altar. God is saying, remember your condition. Your sin must be covered even as you come to offer a sacrifice to me. Do it in such a way that you recognize your sin separates you from God. 
But don't miss this. As heavy and as harsh as many of these things are, they are given by a merciful, redeeming God. We are to worship Him in purity. Not just coming and saying, you know what, this is who you made me, God. This is who I am. I'm just fine. I'm just going to worship you in my own way. God will not allow that. We are to worship Him in purity. Do not miss this, though. God is making a way for sinners to come into His presence even before Christ. That is the mercy of God at work. And that was cause for celebration in Exodus. By the end of Exodus, the glory of God is in the tabernacle and all of the people are in enthusiastic worship. That's where we're going. That's his, that's his intention for us to enjoy Him forever. And that's a cause for celebration today as we celebrate what God has done for us in Christ through His precious blood, that we can be welcomed into His presence, that we can enjoy His good gifts. Remember, the God who invites us to humble worship is our Redeemer. His jealousy, He is jealous, but His jealousy is because of His great love. If you have felt in your heart, you know what, maybe I haven't been faithful to the Lord, remember His love for you. Confess that today and change. Seek Him. Remember his great love for you. He is jealous. His work will always be completed. And so he invites us to rest. Recognize that God always finishes what he's right. Let, let that inspire confidence in you. Know his love, his jealousy, his work. His holiness is awesome. We can always depend on him. God never lies. He always tells the truth and his promises are always sure. And so as a result of all of those things, we are to worship him in purity. So let us, as a church, worship him in purity. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we ask today. God, we we confess that we very often are casual in our worship. We ask your forgiveness for not recognizing that we are always in your presence, that you have given us your spirit, that your spirit lives within us. Lord, forgive us for the times that we grieve your spirit, for the times that we fail to reconcile with each other. Father, we, we ask your forgiveness for the times that we have set aside your law and your commandments and presumed on grace, acting as though we didn't need to obey because you have forgiven us. Father, make us more conscious of your law so that we understand what Jesus did for us. We pray that you would help us to know your holy character, your great love at a deeper level. And Father, we ask that you would teach us the joy of living in worship. Lord, help us taste it. Help it be sweeter than honey to us. Lord, let it be real. And Father, I ask all of this in the name of Jesus, praying in faith, Lord, we know that you answer our prayers. We want to be faithful to ask in faith. So I pray in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.